but it's tense. It's quite loud. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea, to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together let no man separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This also is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your truth. Jesus, we thank you for your message. We pray that you would come here this evening. We know that you are here this evening. Whenever you promise us that whenever two or more meet in your name, then you will be with us. And we pray, Lord, that we will hear your message, that your words and through your Spirit, your words will be heard and anything of me will be forgotten. We pray for your truth this evening, Lord. Amen. So, not only do I have to do the first evening sermon when our new pastor is here, I uh, didn't know that that was happening. Um, Sam tells me he didn't either, but I don't think that's true. Uh, but he's also then given me the topic of divorce, just to make it a little bit more spicy and interesting. Um, I am still married, and I hope to stay married, and I hope to stay that way. Um, so this isn't through my own experience, and I hope it isn't through my own experience. Um, but it's a really interesting couple of passages. Um, and it's also a pretty blunt message at times from Jesus. Uh, and it will also give us some insight between the radical teachings of Christ versus the prescriptivism of religious leaders at the time. And that prescriptivism, we still see it in the world around us today. We still see it in many churches and many religions. But before we get into this, I want to make one thing very clear. In this passage, Jesus is being very direct about divorce but it's specifically about marriage and the laws that were introduced by Moses uh, in Deuteronomy that allowed divorce. What he isn't talking about here, and what I'm not really touching on tonight, is situations 
of severe abuse in marriage, situations where someone's well-being or somebody's family or somebody's life is in danger. These situations always need to be taken very seriously and very sensitively by the church and by society. And they're definitely somewhere that we, as a church, should seek to help and intervene appropriately. And I hope and pray that none of us ever have to encounter that in our family lives. But, as I say, we must continue as a church to offer prayer and support to those that do. So when I talk about marriage and divorce this evening, I'm talking out it, about it outside of those extreme situations. So, we have our passage from Matthew. Uh, Jesus is... Uh, I, always, I always love the fact that the Pharisees, they come and test him, but immediately after he's done something amazing, we, in the first verse, and uh, the, the second verse, he's travelled, large crowds have followed him, and he heals people. And the Pharisees don't go, wow, that's amazing. The Pharisees go, yes, but we're a law-driven religion, so we need to test Jesus to make sure he actually knows his stuff. They wanted to show more than anything, and they specifically chose to do this publicly in front of a large crowd, because they wanted to show that Jesus was an uneducated teacher who didn't know what he was talking about. There might have been a part of them that was genuinely interested to hear what Jesus had to say about marriage and divorce, but I think more than anything they wanted to denounce him as wrong in front of all these people. That's, to a certain part, why they use such a complicated subject to challenge him with. No idea why Sam has decided to challenge me with this subject, by the way, but we'll find out later. Um, but I love how Jesus deals with it. He knows that the Pharisees prided themselves on knowing every single word of Scripture. So instead of getting frustrated with them, he turns the question on its head. On its head. Haven't you read? I thought you guys knew every single word of scripture. Have you not read this? Well, I'll break it down for you just to make it simple, guys, because you clearly don't know. So in verse 4 to 6, he points out how God's intention for marriage was at the very heart of creation story. God has intended marriage since he created us. And we'll come on to that uh, a little bit later on. Um, but I can, you can almost see in the story when Jesus says this that the Pharisees think, yes, they're rubbing their hands together. We've got him because there's a contradiction coming up and he won't be able to explain this contradiction. And they ask, how does that fit with the law? How does that fit with Moses commanding them that men give their wives a certificate of divorce? And I'm sure that they had debated this in their circles for Years and years and centuries and centuries. And I'm also sure they weren't expecting such a swift and blunt reply from Jesus. And they definitely weren't expecting such a hard-to-swallow truth. What Jesus tells them is that the law that was given to them through Moses wasn't the vision of marriage as God intended. It was only because of the weakness of men. We are talking a lot about gender this evening. Thank you, Sam. Another good subject to try and divide people with. Um, and there's a lot of it that is very specific to the culture at the time. Um, 
and there is a lot of it that can still be applied now to both men and to women. But actually in this case, Jesus is talking specifically about men. We don't come out of this very well. And Jesus is quite right in saying of the hardness of men's hearts. The Pharisees um, are referring, and they're talking about the law of Moses, to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4, where the law commanded that a man could give his wife a certificate of divorce if he disliked her. It's quite simple. If you don't like your wife anymore, there's your piece of paper on your way. And that was their interpretation. And they saw this as an allowance from God that if you don't like your wife, you can divorce her. I could end the sermon here, but I won't, because <laughs> my wife is also in the room, so let's move on. <laughs> let's resolve this. But in Deuteronomy, we, you can look it up if you want, or you write it down and look at it later. In, the insistence isn't that if you dislike her, you must divorce her. It's phrased slightly differently. You must, if you dislike her, and you want to divorce her, you must give her a certificate of divorce. The law was about the certificate, and there's a reason for that. In what was, and was for a very long time, an incredibly patriarchal society, I've just realized I'm fiddling with my marriage ring, my wedding ring a lot. I don't think that's a sign, but I'm going to stop. Um, but in a patriarchal society, as it was when Moses gave out this law, when a man disliked his wife, and decided to push her out of the home, she was an outcast. She was unaccepted by society. She had nowhere to go. The law of Moses was designed to give at least some protection to these vulnerable women. If they had a certificate of divorce, it meant that they were allowed to remarry and therefore not be destroyed by what Jesus rightly describes as the hardness of men's heart. And it's funny when you have Pharisees and people taking that law of Moses very literally, because that's in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. The very next verse, verse 5, um, clearly hadn't been read in quite as much detail as the Pharisees had read that particular one. Because it says that any newly married man, when he's just married is not to be sent to war or given any other duties for a whole year so that he can be with his wife. And the reason for this is not principally for the man's benefit, but it's actually so that he can, and I quote this, this is in verse 5 of Deuteronomy 24, so that he can stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. I think I can see why Jesus is accusing men of having hard hearts and slightly double standards when they choose which laws they implement in this case. And in verse 8 of our passage this evening, Jesus is very clear that it wasn't this way from the beginning. This law of Moses was not marriage as God intended it to be. And even if you obey this law of Moses, if you divorce, as Jesus says, except in the case of marital unfaithfulness, and then marry another, this is adultery. I can't dispute that. That is the word of Christ. And God's clear about divorce at other times. In Malachi 2, verses 16, you don't need to go there, um, it says this. 
The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. Divorce does great damage to the one person in our lives that we are supposed to be caring for the most. That is the reality. When I was preparing for this uh, talk, I can't remember which passage it was, I think it might have been the Ephesians one. I opened my big Bible at home, it's quite an old one, and the page in which the, the two pages in which the Ephesians passage was in were joined together, they'd become stuck um, probably from some drink getting spilled in it or something. And when you try to take two pieces of paper apart that have been stuck together, it's impossible to do it without damaging both of them. And I feel like in marriage, we're often like two pieces of paper fully glued together. You can't take them apart without permanently changing and scarring both sides. So it's clear then That to God, marriage is sacred and it is not meant to end. But why is this? And you'll have noticed that both in the Ephesians reading and in the Matthew reading, we have the same verses quoted. Uh, And this is a passage from Genesis 2, 24. Where it says, and it says it in verse 5 of of Matthew. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. In the very beginning, marriage was created as something that God designed to be fundamental and lasting. And if we go uh, to Ephesians 5, uh, Lisa, uh, to verse, where's he gone? 32. So the, the last slide. Paul describes marriage and this version of marriage as a profound mystery. And he very quickly explains why. This is a mystery that is a demonstration of Christ and the church. This is what we are talking about when we're talking about marriage. Our marriages and our relationships should be led by the example of Christ's love for us and also serve as an example of Christ's love for us. As Christians, our relationships and specifically our marriages should be a witness of our faith. As you can see, this is elevated to something beyond just that heart-pumping love. It's something much higher than that. Our love for our spouses should be a demonstration of God's love for us. This is a love as we see it with God and we've sung about it this evening that is never ending, it's unconditional and it never gives up. Love in marriage is not just about emotion. Emotions go up and down. If we relied on emotion, we'd be very unstable people and quite often are. Love in marriage takes work, it takes patience, it takes selflessness, even at the hardest of times. And if you're ever thinking in your marriage, and I've done this, so I'm not pointing the finger at anyone, if you're ever thinking, well, I'm putting the effort in. It's her, it's him, he's not putting the effort in. I'm not married to a man. She's not putting the effort in. If you're thinking that, you're still not being selfless. You're still pointing the finger. You can only control what you do. 
And one of the greatest myths is that a good marriage should be an easy one. That the love, when it's a good marriage, it just happens and will always just happen. Marriage is hard work, and it's supposed to be hard work. The disciples realized this in uh, verse 10, so we're going to ask you to change the slide again. Um, In uh, Matthew 19, verse 10, when uh, they say, if this is the case, if I can't just divorce my wife when I dislike her, if I actually have to stick it through, then it's better not to marry. It's a lot of effort. And even Jesus acknowledges that in verse 11, marriage is actually too hard sometimes. The reality is really tough. I'm not saying that if you don't marry, you're not as good a person if you do marry. You have to stick exactly the same kind of love and Christ's kind of love in all our relationships and our families. But there is a reality of marriage here that is really hard to swallow. The best marriages are the ones that have the most blood, the most sweat, and the most tears poured into them. Just a caveat, if you're thinking this is a bit heavy, uh, and my wife is probably going to start worrying about how hard I find marriage. Um, It's hard work. It's so, so worth it. If you think about all the things that you really put your effort into to make work, all the most amazing things that you've built in your life so far, they all take hard work. And then back in Ephesians 5, uh, Paul gives us some tough words specifically for wives and for husbands, and it's a passage that we use a lot in weddings. You'll have recognized it from uh, many weddings that you've been to. And it's usually then delivered with a sweet, sentimental talk about how lovely everything is. And everything is lovely, don't get me wrong. But do we actually realize sometimes what the words actually mean, what it's asking us to do in marriage? If we look at Ephesians 5, verse uh, 22, if we can get that on the slide. It tells us, wives, submit to your husbands in everything. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And if men are at this point thinking they've got it up lightly, (laughs) verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love in marriage isn't purely romantic love. Don't get me wrong. It very often is. And it's, and it's not love, that feeling that we get, as I talked about the heart pumping, with that initial rush of emotion we feel when we start a relationship. And that kind of love can be the spark that lights the fire. But marriage here, the marriage that God's intended, is complete and utter submission on both sides. Think of all the things that Christ has done out of love for us. He has taught us. He gives us tough messages like the one we've read tonight. He doesn't shy away away from the difficult conversations. He was prepared to be humiliated, ridiculed, and die on a cross out of love for us. And he dies on a cross 
And we read it in verse 27. In order to present his bride without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. He takes the blame for our actions. And this is the example of what God intended for marriage. And if it is the example, then what are we in marriage as spouses prepared to do for our other half? And as I mentioned, this challenge works just as much for those of us who aren't married. How many relationships with... Now, start again. How many relationships with friends and family could we transform with this kind of love? Timothy Keller talks about this. I'm just going to take some water. In his excellent book, uh, The Meaning of Marriage. I have a copy here, and I would thoroughly recommend it to, to everyone, whether you're married or whether you're not. It's a fantastic book. I actually noticed as well um, that uh, the bookmark in... The, from, so we did this as a marriage course, and the bookmark in uh, uh, the marriage book is the receipt for the engagement ring. And I don't know whether that's my kind of, well, this is the price that I've paid and therefore I can't give up, <laughs> or, or what, but uh, you can take from that what you want. But in one part, he talks specifically uh, about learning to love the stranger. There's one thing I want to talk about, uh, specifically about marriage tonight, which is that we can never fully know who we marry. And even if we think we do, my wife Hannah and I have been dating for nine years by the time we were married. Yet, I remember we had our honeymoon, that was lovely, uh, and it has been lovely ever since. But I remember that first Monday and Tuesday morning when we were back in our normal daily lives and I was sat there eating breakfast and Hannah said to me, is something wrong? What's happened? Like you've changed, is, is this working? Are you okay? And I was like, no, everything's fine. Because she had seen that I usually am quite extroverted. I like being the centre of attention. It's one of my weaknesses. I probably shouldn't be put here. Um, that's uh, true. But I hate mornings. I loathe them. I don't want to be spoken to. I don't want to speak to anyone. And she had never seen this in nine years of dating. You don't know who you marry until you marry them, no matter how much you think you do. Uh, and that's just the start. As, we li as life goes on, we change, our personalities change, our bodies change. I want to show you a picture, uh, if I may, uh, Lisa, which is that one. <laughs> that's the right reaction, thank you. Uh, for those that went, are the most, get the most ice cream later. Hannah's giving them out, so happy times. But that was 14 years ago. We were both 16, we just started going out. And I look at that and I have a whole load of emotions. I, also, I said to Hannah, um, did you know then that, that, that this was going to last, that we were going to be married, that I could be talking about this picture at church? And her response was just beautiful. It spoke to my heart. She said to me, Matthew, don't flatter yourself. <laughs> But I look at that, I look at me there, and whilst you can see the, the resemblance, I haven't changed too much, I hope, but I know the person that I was then, and he is so different to the person that's standing here right now. And I can say exactly the same for Hannah. 
and she will tell you all the bad things that have changed too. But over time, our spouse will change. That is the reality. Marriage is then not something that you can just figure out how it works and then coast for 50, 60, 70 years. We have to learn to love the stranger that we thought we fully knew. And how many times have you heard this line when relationships break apart? Well, they're just not the person I fell in love with. That's the point. They won't be. That is the joy of marriage. We're supposed to see people change and grow, and we're supposed to help them as they do this. And there's lots of ways that we can learn to love like this, uh, through open and honest communication, by not being afraid of uh, justified confrontation, uh, by still being prepared to listen, by focusing on their needs and not yours, by learning what love languages your partner understands, uh, not just which ones you like to hear. And these languages can be affection, friendship, service, sex, all of these things you need to learn how to communicate properly and how your partner understands them. There is a ton of these in here that I could go into and I'd love to read to you right now. But go and read it. It's about learning how we can transition from being in love to showing real love, to showing Christ's love. And we have to keep Christ to the heart of our relationship if we're going to do this. Before we finish, I want to cover one other thing. We can learn these things. We can help other people learn these things. But sometimes we still fail. Sometimes things go wrong and people get to the point where they believe that their marriage is no longer reconcilable. Reconcilable. I'm English and I can't speak English properly. Even with the full support from their friends and family, they've got to that point where they can't go any further. Divorces happen, and they will still happen. How are we as a church supposed to react then? First, remember what Jesus says when asked what the greatest commandments are. One, love the Lord your God. Sorry, I didn't tell you it was question and answer. I didn't, but the next one. Two, love your neighbor as you love yourself. We need to love our neighbours, our brothers and our sisters, sisters, unconditionally and without question. We need to be there when the shit hits the fan. And that means when this is happening, when this has failed, we can be a shoulder to cry on, a source of accountability, finding the right places for help, most importantly showing the never-ending love of God. And all of this without judgment. Jesus teaches in Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5, that we must not judge. And the verse goes, Judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured out to you. This is the passage where he's talking about taking the plank out of your own eye before you can help remove the speck of dust from your brother's. We shouldn't shy away from teaching what God tells us about marriage and the intention of marriage. There is a tough truth there, as we've already talked about. But we also shouldn't stand on a pedestal at these moments, shouting about it and judging others' failures. That is not the point. That is not loving your neighbour. 
I've seen this. I've seen this in my own personal life. When I was 12, my parents divorced. Now, I'm not saying whether they were right or wrong to do it. I don't know if the damage that was caused by them divorcing was greater or less than the damage if they would have stayed together. And it's not my place to know that or to say that. But what I did see at the time was the different reactions you get from people within the church. There were some who, and some leaders of the church in particular, who ostracized my parents. My parents had been involved as leaders in the church and they were no longer allowed to do that. But that, in some circles, makes sense. Again, not saying that was justified or not justified. But they were also had taken away from them vital support groups and outlets when it was most needed. The relationship, because of that judgment, between my parents and the church has been permanently damaged. That, I can tell you. It's noticeable, for example, that my dad does not have the spiritual network and fellowship that he used to. That has gone. Fortunately, he still has his strong faith. And I thank God every day for that. But just as much as there were those in the church who acted with judgment, there were so many that offered support and love without it. Yes, they challenged my parents on the situation. They talked them through the biblical side of it, but they also saw a family in need. They sought to help through love and to meet the need wherever they could. And my parents also realized that despite this and despite their failures, they still had their selfless love for their children and they never let it become about them. They never let us be used as a bargaining chip. And because of this and because of those in the church that showed love without judgment, I still have my whole family unit. And I still have my strong relationship with my mum and my dad. And whilst... I'm running out of time to uh, dwell on it here, but there is one really important thing that I learned through all of this, that even when events and people's actions are not as God has intended, when marriage doesn't go the way that God prescribed it to be at the beginning of creation, he still can transform that situation into something incredible. There are so many positives that have come out of that time for me and for my family. There is so much that I can see that God has done. And if you want to know more, then just ask me after the service. As we sang earlier, even when the enemy means for evil, he turns it for our good. Even when our actions go against what God's intended, he still turns it for, his good, to, for our good. If marriage is an example of God and Christ's love for the church, look at the amount of times that Israel and the church has gone away from God and God has pulled them back. He doesn't want to break things down. He wants to build them up. He hasn't forgotten us. So we must learn as a church and as people in intimate relationships to show Christ-like love, love like that to those around us. If we can do this, this will be our greatest witness. Sometimes we will fail, but we mustn't fear this. In my mind, Probably the Pharisees' biggest error, not just in this passage, but overall, was to see this teaching as black and white, to try and find a set of rules and instructions that allowed them to be sanctified. 
But Jesus, in this passage, he knows the real context. The law of Moses that the Pharisees were challenging him on was about to pass away. Paul talks about this a lot in his letters. The law of Moses, the law is dead, and in its place is Christ, and Jesus knows this. That despite all our failures, we can still be saved. Saved because of his love. And that love is the example that we must follow. Shall we pray? Lord, once again, we thank you for your honest truth. We thank you for the relationships and the marriages that you intended from us, for us from creation. We thank you for the joy that you want them to bring us. We pray, Lord, that we would act selflessly, that we would have your love for those around us, for our friends, for our family, for our husbands, for our wives. That we would be able to keep working hard, inspired by you, so that our lives and our love will be a witness and a testament to yours. In your name we pray.